from the Mercy One Studio. Welcome, folks, to The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. I'm Dr. Bud Marr. And we are coming to you from these United States. I am over here in Des Moines, Iowa, where, like always, it is temperate and never too hot, and the breeze is gently going through the veins of the trees. And I just got more poetic than I bet you can, Bud, about Pittsburgh, where you're at. Yeah, I'm here at the Newman Institute in Pittsburgh, but no, we are not as beautiful as what you just described. <laughs> well, it's unfair to unmask one's uh, opponent's poetic abilities. So I'm going to point out that it would really be cool to be in Pittsburgh uh, sometimes in the summer, because I'm guessing if the humidity is not too stifling, that the breeze coming off of the three wind, uh, rivers rustling through your various plates of French fries would actually be very comforting sometimes. Yeah, I'm pretty satisfied with our, our climate. Uh, you know, it's a we, we get a, a fair amount of rain, but it, because of the altitude, I mean, we're not the Rockies or anything, but uh, <laughs> we're a little higher than you guys, so it stays pretty cool. Yeah, uh, down in Oklahoma, where I was uh, got to go see family after all these many months, it was good to get to see them. Um, it is already hot. They had like an 85 degree day, and we're already talking about how cool it was. And then I got back to Des Moines, where it was 85, and people were like, kind of a swelpner already. So, uh, you know, things are relative and all of those things like that, I suppose. Uh, but we're uh, broadcasting from uh, Iowa Catholic Radio Network. It's wonderful to have all of you with us, all the listeners in Iowa, uh, Oklahoma. Then, of course, everybody who is listening through podcast or on iowacatholicradio.com or the Iowa Catholic Radio app. Thank you for spending your Wednesday with us here in the Uncommon Good. It is always an honor and a pleasure to have all of you with us. As always, we're underwritten by Mercy College of Health Sciences, mchs.edu, to go check that out. Um, the summer semester's already begun. Uh, record numbers doing that, but uh, I, I think responding to the COVID crisis and, and really answering the call about how uh, people are answering the call about how they can be a, a, an integral part of our community and responding uh, to uh, the health crisis and everything like this. Uh, but we're, we're already gearing up for fall, uh, making plans, trying to keep everybody safe and be um, mindful about what the future will look like. I've been uh, got the privilege to be parts of those plans. So make sure to go check out mchs.edu, Mercy College of Health Sciences that underwrites the uncommon good. Yeah, I think if people could get a glimpse into some of the courses we teach, they'd feel pretty good about the future of healthcare. And I've I've been impressed with my servant leadership course this summer the students just being really flexible and pivoting uh, as, as our country continues to try to figure out uh, the COVID crisis and all the nitty gritty details that come with that. Exactly right. And when you do something with radio or you're, you know, you're on zoom more and things like this, um, I get a lot less questions, you know, sometimes, but in the past when we've been like, Oh, we teach at a health science college, they'll kind of look at you and me and go health sciences. Huh? And we're like, don't worry. We don't actually teach anyone how to be healthy. We teach them how to be to be moral. Uh, so when Bud and I have future health problems, they'll be there to help us out. Well, speak for yourself. No, I. Yeah, that's it's it's a part of life for all of us. Maybe for some of us, it be, it comes sooner than than others. But um, I think 
in all seriousness, Mercy is doing just an amazing job of blending the vision that this this Catherine McCauley and the sisters gave us with uh, you know top notch professionals. Yep, it's uh, so Mercy College of Health Sciences, mchs.edu. Well, bud, uh, we we already like talked about you know the weather, uh, and so uh, you know usually at this point we bring up food or French fries uh, or uh, sports. Um, but w- what I want to like point out to people is you know when we we start looking at everything that's going on in the news, um, mm-hmm. it's easy to use social media. Uh, I mean that's how we stay connected with so many people out there. Um, in the field, looking at social media, checking out Twitter and Facebook and some unknown social media that inevitably 20 year olds are using that I don't understand and I'm not allowed to use. Uh, but but I know that when we get to talking about whatever is happening, obviously, in the news, I mean, whatever you want to talk about in 2020, there are several things that you can be talking about in 2020 that the debates that we begin to have uh you know, they can either be screaming matches, they can be sort of tribal uh, back and forth, or we can try to show the best of some of our traditions and actually have what I would call real debates where we like set terms and we try to have debates and figure out things, uh, you know, to the best of our ability. I know many listeners who are listening on Iowa Catholic Radio tune in to Catholic Answers and uh, Catholic Answers routinely has debates like this where people will debate uh, Positions And so today on the show, we're lucky enough to have one of those people who uh, participated with Trent Horn uh, in a debate recently, Sam Raucha, uh, mutual friend of mutual friends of both Bud and I. And so that's who we're going to have on the show, uh, not necessarily recapping everything that was on the debate, but specifically talking about um, how it is that the figure of the saints and the lives of the saints can help us understand uh, the terms of debate that we're getting at. And then this is all going to end up being about education because all three of us uh, are educators, but uh, Sam specifically is a professor of education. So, Bud, looking forward after the break to getting talk, uh, getting to talk to Sam about all of this. Yeah, it should be great. Uh, like, like you were talking about with the events this year, it feels like uh, <laughs> the political is an issue again. What I mean by that is we were sort of in some ways like coasting as a culture, but now with some of these crises, it's really brought to the fore in a very stark way some of the issues that we tackle on the show. And I think Sam's going to have a lot of wisdom to give us on those matters. So, folks, you're in for a good one. As always, we we're, we're appreciate that you, you tune in and take part of your day to listen to um, our hour-long show. Uh, but you're going to be rewarded greatly. So thank you for joining. Uh, this is Bo Bonner, Dr. Bud Marr with The Uncommon Good. Stick around, and we'll be back right after these messages. Uh Uh-oh, the bird's not going. There we go. (laughs) Folks, if you want to uh, keep up with the show, if you want to ask us questions, if you have questions throughout the show, or you want to leave a message for us afterwards, that's easy to do. Just use the zip line. 515-223-1150. 515-223-1150. The zip line. Like I said, you can leave text. All you got to do is use your phone, text that number, and you can leave us questions. You can even tell us that we're bad or that we're healthier than we sound. Or There's a many th- ways that you can interact with the show. Just leave hashtag UCG for the uncommon good. We'll make sure to look at it when we get a chance. And then we will try to answer any questions or comments you might have on the show. The Zip Whip Live. 515-223-1150. 515-223-1150. Thanks for listening to the show. And we look uh, forward to interacting with you soon. This is the uncommon good. 
and we'll be back right after this. What is the best gift ever? Well, some might say a Catholic education, and I agree. But if you think you can't afford Catholic education, think again. Apply for CTO, and you could receive up to half your tuition for kindergarten through 12th grade. More information is online, ctoiowa.org. The bottom line, it's for the kids and their future. Make plans August 3rd for the annual Dowling Catholic Golf Outing at Echo Valley Country Club. Proceeds benefit the Coppola Family Endowment, providing assistance to students who otherwise may not be able to receive a Catholic education. Shotguns start at 715 with a boxed lunch, snacks, and beverages on the course. Information on event sponsorships, contact Carolyn at 515-778-9676 and register your foursome online at dowlingcatholic.org slash golf dash outing. The annual Dowling Catholic Golf Outing at Echo Valley Country Club. There are millions of children that go hungry every day. Thank you to Skeffington's Formalware for supporting Mary's Meals. Their vision is that every child in the world should be able to receive at least one good meal every day in a place of education. Mary'sMealsUSA.org CTI Ready Mix has been serving Central Iowa since 2004. With 50 mixer trucks in five locations in the Des Moines area, they can supply even the largest projects. CTI Ready Mix, 515-276-9567. Online at cti-ia.net. Everything we have is a gift from God, and in return, He expects us to be good stewards of what we have received. Through a grant from the Iowa Division of Insurance, Financial Literacy is an unbiased financial education program that is engaging, empowering, motivating, and available for free. Learn more at iowacatholicradio.com. Thank you, Golden Rule Plumbing, Heating, and Cooling, for sponsoring my show. John Lee and Eddie in the Morning on Iowa Catholic Radio. Golden Rule, servicing Des Moines for over 15 years. They obey the rules to live by, especially the Golden Rule. Online at goldenrulephc.com. We're back with the Uncommon Good. Bob Bonner and Dr. Ludmar joining you this Wednesday. Thank you for taking time to listen to the show. We're glad to have you here. Our guest on the show today is Dr. Sam Raucha, Associate Professor of Philosophy of Education in the Department of Educational Studies at the University of British Columbia, a prolific writer and musician with several books worth checking out, including A Primer for Philosophy and Education, uh, Folk Phenomenology, and three albums to his name, Freedom for Love, Late to Love, and Anamnesis. You can learn more about all of his work at Sam Raucha, so S-A-M-R-O-C-H-A dot com. Sam, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me out there. So, Sam, uh, people might have got the chance uh, to listen to you on this radio station. So Iowa Catholic Radio tunes in with uh, Catholic Answers uh, live for one of their shows. But you got to have a a, a debate with Trent Horn. uh, And the topic was, can Catholics be socialists? And I might might be messing up the exact title of of the debate. But what I was really interested in and thought was... uh, just a food for a lot of thought that I wanted to talk about on the show today is not necessarily to reprise the entire bit debate, but that when you gave your case out of the gate, instead of trying to sort of go by textbook definitions or dictionary, sort of like this, that, or the others, you immediately went to blesseds and venerables and saints who lived lives that were, if not socialists themselves, were at least socialist adjacent, if uh, that's the way you could use the word. And out of the gate, one of the people you used, I know, is someone who's very important to a lot of people here in the Des Moines Diocese and a lot of young people, uh, Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati. And so, you know, for to, to start the show, 
you know, my thought is to ask when people think about debates, they think that like what you have to do is rifle through things like definitions and things like this. What, sure. what, what brought to your mind the first impulse to say, I'm going to find someone like Frasati and talk about his life and show that his life showed proof to a quote unquote debate. Sure. Um, yeah. Thanks for that question. You know, the, the difficulty for me in, in the debate in, in general, and it's something that I'm still kind of understanding is I was, I was kind of being pulled in about three different directions. I, I was a competitive Lincoln Douglas debater in high school and a fairly active and kind of, you know, um, it was, it was important for me. It introduced me to philosophy. And so I had this kind of like debaters mentality about how to like, how to build a great neg case and how to really spread, spread things out and all that kind of stuff. And then on the other hand, I was also thinking that like no one probably except for me cares about that aspect of debate. Oh no, I did. And, Just so you know, I was, okay. I was, I was, I was beaming. Thank <laughs> no. you for, thank you for making us feel like we've been listened to. Anyway, keep going. Well, <laughs> no, no. I mean, I'm glad to hear that. I just, um, I was warned by a lot of people that like Sam, no, you know, there are very few people who are actually going to take this as like negative uh, because the, the burden of the negative in, in a, in a debate is the affirmative and the negative don't debate each other as people. They debate the resolution and the right. resolution was no one can at the same time be a good Catholic and a true socialist. So I was torn between taking a very maybe technical approach. And then on the other hand, really communicating to people who aren't interested in kind of, you know, scoring points technically and, to be honest, the biggest thing that bothered me about the original book and about the resolution is that I think a lot of ordinary people who don't know any better see that and they see it as a note, as a kind of claim to impossibility or to even to prohibition that like, oh, oh, I can't, that's off the table. So what I wanted to do right off the gate was to provide people for whom good Catholic was hopefully not going to um, become an issue uh, who they could see as uh, true as, as socialists and and socialists in this case i mean people who were affiliated with socialist parties who um who who were working in their historical context under the name of socialism and the first one was blessed pierre giorgio frasari um who uh grew up of course um in the time of the rise of mussolini so the um the anti-fascist element of his socialism of his time for his context was crucial. And so that was another direction I was pulled in. The third direction was of course the direction of like what does socialism mean in Catholic social teaching? And that was the second section where I talked about the meaning of socialism. But to your, to your, to your question, um, my thought was just to bring someone who was an instant existential counterfactual to the resolution. And by that, I mean someone that existed who as the, who their very existence was a fact that went against the implied fact of the resolution, which was that these people don't exist. So I just showed here they are. And I gave three, but you know, Frasati was certainly, I think the most well-known of the three for most people. Absolutely. And, and outside you go, of Tanzania and Rio de Janeiro. <laughs> right. That, that, no, that's right. And especially, like I said, I, I just got done teaching um, for two years, a class with the Catechetical Institute here in Des Moines, and who they, they name each class. Uh, well, they, they, they pick a patron saint, and guess who was their pa- patron saint? But Blessed Frasati. So when I heard you, I was like, well, this seems like a natural fit to talk about this in, in, in Des Moines. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I think there's a lot that attends to this. Um, 
for instance, you know, sort of like putting saints up in pedestals and only sort of getting a very, you know, small sliver of their life. Sure. Prasadi, in, in a very short amount of time, he died really early, yeah. did a lot. And part of what he did was get in street fights with fascists. And Well, uh, we should be careful here. Um, he, he was involved in some altercations uh, where the uh, fascist police were right. uh, putting their hands on his friends and he he stuck up for them yeah but he wasn't just out you know throwing hands in the streets that's true i'm i'm probably adding the oklahoma country music element to this like it, to, yeah. in my mind it's like a uh, clint eastwood any which way but loose but you're right like so he he the point being is he was more than willing to uh go and oppose this real threat from mussolini and precisely in doing so um affiliated with what like obviously at the time in Italy would be considered socialist parties, quite distinct from communist ones to be fair as well. Absolutely. Um, and but, by but the way, the, the way the way in which he he became a part of the socialist party, he kind of had two wings to his socialism. Uh, and politically, he was actually a member of a different party, the Partito Popolare Italiano, which means the populist Italian party. But he was on the left wing of that party that realized it needed to form a strategic alliance with the Socialist Party in order to be able to, well, unsuccessfully oppose the rise of Mussolini because the coup eventually blew, blew it all out. But that was his like political side. His more intellectual side was the work he did uh, for a journal that that he helped found uh, that he helped found called Il Pensiero Popolare, which was um, on populist thought and some of the advocacy he did as an as an intellectual and activist, really. And there you saw, I would say, whenever uh, Saint Pon- John Paul II beatified him, he called him the uh, the man of the eight virtue, uh, the right. man of the eight beatitudes, right? And that's I think where we really saw that come out. In his no, face. I and, and what a. What an awesome name to get called the man of the eight beatitudes. Uh, oh my gosh. F- few other, you know, titles that you can get that would be uh, better to have. W- what what comes to mind and, and why I think this is so powerful to think about, like you said, a- existential counterfactuals as a sort of like, you know, debate nerdy way to say we look at people and people serve as the sort of stuff that we can then have arguments about. And what I mean by this is you, in your in your beautiful book about a primer on philosophy and education, you you really dig into the metaphor about priming versus painting. Like, mm-hmm. why do we why do we prime objects, particularly wood, before we paint on them? And and you make a wonderful point, right? That to children, if you saw like if a child saw someone priming wood versus painting it, they might get confused. They look very similar. And and you make the point that the intellectual work that goes to priming ourselves to have an argument versus having one look similar, but they have very different things, their different ends and goals that they're up to. And, and, and one of the things that comes up when you talk about the debate, like, and again, like socialism is the, 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 the term of the debate that had a lot of uh, questions about it. You, you start to get to this question of how do we prime ourselves to then have an actual good debate about what we want to debate? That's right. Because if you just try to paint directly the wood, you can uh, but there's a reason people have primed wood for centuries before they painted. They want the paint to stick. They want it to withstand the elements. And preparing the wood makes the paint stay better. And the same, of course, occurs when we think about debates we're having. You know, words don't come freely associated. They don't drop from heaven. We need to do some work if we're going to use the logical terminology, come mm-hmm. to terms to then have the debate. 
I think it's really important, Sam, for people to realize that part of coming to terms to have a debate is to do something like look at the lives of the saints before we then get into the technical debate of yes or no, can you be this or that? Absolutely. You know, I mean, for, for me, one of my biggest preoccupations across my work as as a scholar, as an educator, as a philosopher, but but I would say honestly, even like my obsession with soundscapes and music and um, and, and all the way to this debate is I, I really have a concern for the real. Um, uh, I often note to, to people that John three sixteen that famous verse, it's about for God so loved the world. And so the worldliness um, uh, aspect of the real is for me really important because it's the first thing that our senses come into contact with. It's our most kind of common, ordinary experience. And so for me, I never like to begin with anything that is even slightly out of context. So by giving these three accounts of socialist good Catholics, one in Italy, one in Recife, Brazil, and one in Tanzania, I was trying to bring people into a world. And then from there, to talk a little bit about the meaning of socialism, but contextualized by the by the tradition and by the most recent tradition of Catholic social teaching. But you'll notice that at the end, I ended biographically because I wanted them to know me. Who's talking to you? What's my, you know, how, how can you understand this reality of mine that I went to the Franciscan University of Steubenville? I didn't get these ideas from, you might say, the standard left that you might expect or whatever. So, yeah, to me, priming versus painting is is in some sense, making space for us to have a worldly uh, encounter with something uh, so that we can make sure that at all times, the question that what we're talking about is real is hopefully later down the road, not an obstacle to us. So Sam, as, as Bo mentioned by, um, by text, he and I are both converts to faith. And I think when I came into the church, I was maybe naive about how vociferous some of the arguments could get and um yeah i guess what i have in mind is you know and in some ways like we we know like if you're a practicing catholic you believe x and whatever i name is probably going to be contested but i'll just say like the immaculate conception like all catholics you know are mm-hmm. supposed to sign on to that it can get um a little bit i don't know if i'd say murkier but like more heated when it comes to the issues that your debate was talking about and to me, the classic example was Pope Benedict's encyclical Caritatis and Veritate, which is in the stream of the great um, Catholic encyclicals. And, and George Weigel, a, a popular uh, Catholic writer, he had an article where he said, like, we can go through that encyclical and we can mark all of the Benedictine elements in mm-hmm. gold. The and then the elements, the, yeah, that's right. yeah. the elements that were written by the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace in red. And he sort of said, like it gave the impression we could kind of discard the red. And uh, yeah. I guess thinking about some of the debates here in the States, uh, you know, I've, I've had friends on Facebook who have posted articles or statistics and they say like our current economic arrangement has, has, has pulled this many millions of people around the world out of poverty. And so when you look at encyclicals like Benedict's or like John Paul II's going all the way back to, to Pius, the, uh, Pius the, or Leo the 13th, I should say, like, what were they concerned about with industrialization and capitalization, um, capitalism? Because you get this impression that, well, look at all the good these things have done. So why have the popes been, been concerned about some of these developments? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And it's super historical. Um, I actually think that for one to actually understand what's motivating uh, Rerum Navarum and at the very end of the 19th century, you really have to, to be willing to kind of take a slightly deeper dive talking about priming again. I always back everything up. <laughs> um, but you have to take a deeper dive into the rise of industrial capitalism in the, the early to mid 19th century. Um, and we have a lot of accounts of that. Uh, some are more famous than others. Marx's capital is probably the most famous, but it's not by any means the only one. Um, within within Catholicism from Vatican City, there was a publication called uh, Civita Catolica, which to my knowledge is the place where putting together the idea of the social and, and the idea of justice as like a formal coinage term, social justice was coined in, 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 in that period in the 1840s in that publication. So there was a lot of concern for the fact that industrialism, urbanization, all of these things, we were seeing a kind of polis, a kind of city, a kind of social arrangement that, that had not really risen to, you might say, uh, concern and a lot of people were concerned about it including the, the concern about it being built on the back of expropriation of wealth and in, in, in the UK for instance from India and in terms of Spain from uh, uh, the Americas and so so forth the rise of, of shadow slavery and its relation to industrialism so all of these things all happened before Rerum Navarum and I always tell people that like you can't really start off cold with Rerum Navarum and really think you're going to understand because it takes the church oftentimes a long time to decide to sort of throw its voice into the public square. And there's a lot of counsel that happens. I think that's good. Um, I ended the debate by pointing out that God uses plural pronouns. Let us make man in our image. Uh, the Hebrew tradition says, Rashi says that this is to, to show Israel that you should never make decisions alone. The encyclicals definitely follow that. And so for me, when we see Rerum Navarum all the way through Quadragesimo Anno and Santissimus Annos and all the things in between um, from, from all the popes, all the way to Pope Benedict, all the way to Laudato Si we see in Francis, um, the church's concern is with this um, rise in a certain kind of scale that is unconcerned with the kinds of conviviality and the kinds of attention to the common good, to solidarity, but primarily I would say the dignity of the human person that get lost as that scale increases with no sense of, of judgment perhaps. And the church will always, I think, be concerned about this. And I think as we've moved from industrial capitalism to global capitalism, these concerns only increase. Well, Sam, I think that the context thing is important here too, because Part of what this debate brings up is people will go like, well, of course we all know what socialism is. And then you have one of these debates and then people are like, no one really knows what socialism is. Or they have um, and, and in the social encyclicals, it's interesting, right? Because I think about Rerum Navarum and when like the first condemnations of the, the like using the word socialism as a term mm -hmm. comes up in the encyclicals. Well, first of all, the Vatican and Italy are all extremely late to industrializing. So, on, so yeah. on, one, on one hand, they're finally having discussions. This goes back to, like, Blessed Frasati, too. They're having discussions about industrialization, like 1850 to 1935, that Germany has now, like, at that point, had dealt with for 100 years. England, yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, America, in some ways. 
And so, you know, it, it starts to be interesting to go back to priming versus painting, getting ready for a discussion versus actually having it is, you know, words, uh, not only do they have historical context, but I mean, this is something that I, I think I took this from, you know, Peter Kreft from his book on logic, you know, the, the, the continual thing that we will always be up to with logic and then philosophy and argumentation words aren't terms aren't true or false they're clear or unclear propositions are true or false and so when we say you know so it's like to, to parse out the technicality for everyone listening a proposition is when we say i mean an easy one would be like you should do x or you should not do x but the term catholic the term socialism the term economy they're either clear or unclear and as we go along throughout history they can be more or less clear. Mm-hmm. And so in a context of, of people having in mind something like the word socialism, um, 1750, 1850, 1950, and now, you know, and soon in 2050, the question can always come back to, are we clear about our terms? And was a term that was clear now need to be clarified more? The history of theology in many ways is big arguments about that. Um, I've blabbed on and we're getting close to the break. So um, we're going to go to the break here. But I think when we get back uh, in Sam and Bud, like just great questions and great discussion so far. I think that that's what we're going to talk about is when, when we look to right now and then the future of what's coming up and these sort of world and global changes that Sam alluded to. Part of the question that we have to say is, as the church, do we have faith enough in our dogmatic tradition in our mm. encyclical and tradition to say it might be time to re-clarify things that we thought were clear and are not. And that sure. this is the good work that we're willing to do. So Sam, thank you for joining the show. We'll be back with you after this break. This is the uncommon good Bo Bonner and Dr. Budmar. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back right after this. Folks, if you want to keep up with Iowa Catholic Radio, it's easy to do. All you have to do is use our social media or go online to that OG social media site, the website, iowacatholicradio.com, where you can listen live. If you're not live, you can donate, you can sign up and uh, get uh, become part of our email crew that uh, keeps you up to date with what's going on on the station around the diocese. You can go to Facebook. And if you type in Iowa Catholic Radio, you can befriend us. And then thanks to the largies of Zuckerberg, we can be friends and you can follow what Iowa Catholic Radio is doing. Or you can go to Twitter, go to at IA Catholic Radio, follow our tweets, see what we're up to in the Twitterosphere and going on uh, in the flesh through the Des Moines Diocese. Uh, and then if you ever need to call the station, 515-223-1150, or you can download the Iowa Catholic Radio app. This is The Uncommon Good, and we'll be back right after this. Thank you, Big Red Q Quick Print, for underwriting the sports report. Family owned and operated since 1980, Big Red Q Quick Print is a full-service print shop, ready to help you with all your printing needs with speed and accuracy. BigRedQ-DesMoines.com There are millions of children that go hungry every day. Thank you to Skeffington's Formalware for supporting Mary's Meals. Their vision is that every child in the world should be able to receive at least one good meal every day in a place of education. Mary's Meals USA.org. 
Thanks to Blessman International for their support of Iowa Catholic Radio. Every year, Blessman International leads teams of Central Iowans to share the compassionate heart of Christ with orphans and vulnerable children in South Africa. You can learn more and sign up for a trip at blessmaninternational.org. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and Faith on Trial provided by Paul Martin and Paul Mitchell, owners of Imogene Ingredients. Imogene Ingredients supply specialized feed ingredients for livestock and pet diets to improve maternal and young animal health in both conventional and organic production. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and John Leonetti in the Morning is provided by Five Sons Naturescapes. Five Sons Naturescapes is a Catholic veteran-owned family company providing premium outdoor landscaping. Learn more about Five Sons Naturescapes at fivesonsnaturescapes.com. fivesonsnaturescapes.com. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio's broadcast of Dowling Catholic Sports and Activities is provided by Kemen. Kemen strives to sustainably transform the quality of life every day for 80% of the world with their products and services. Kemen, using science to transform the world. Online at Kemen.com. Here's your forecast on Iowa Catholic Radio. About 80 for the high this afternoon. We should be getting some sunshine with a few clouds and just a slim chance of a shower. Overnight, clear and down to about 60, warming up quite a bit tomorrow, sunny and 90. The weather is brought to you by Rock Valley Physical Therapy. Outstanding outpatient physical therapy and sports medicine rehabilitation with seven convenient locations in the Des Moines metro and southwest Iowa area. I'm meteorologist Steve Hamilton on Iowa Catholic Radio. We're back with the Uncommon Good. Bob Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr joining you this Wednesday. Thank you for listening to the show. On the show as our guest today, we have Sam Raucha, Associate Professor of Philosophy of Education in the Department of Educational Studies at the University of British Columbia. Prolific writer and musician. You should check out his books. You can check out his website. S-A-M-R-O-C-H-A dot com. Sam, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks again so much for having me. So we, we left at the uh, top of the break the idea of, okay, one of the ongoing reasons why you have to keep hiring philosophers and theologians, right? That like, we're, we're not just bums, like, you know, existing off the fumes of everyone who came before us is, you know, propositions are true and false. And some of those propositions have been true for a long time and they need defended, but, but maybe we don't need to, so to speak, repeat arguments too much. But terms, terms, and this is like a coming from uh, Peter Kreft, this is sort of old school logic, terms are either clear or unclear. And That's because right. of how language works, they can become more or less clear. And part of the work, the priming work, to use Sam's metaphor about priming versus painting, and so in thought, we do primary work and then we do the work itself, but that part of that primary work of priming an argument is to coming to terms, to clarifying terms. And in many ways, a lot of the political discussion, it seems, Sam, if there's anything else that we look out in 2020 and see, is that a lot of things that we assumed were clear, especially in the Catholic world, right. maybe aren't so much. And that if sure. we're a people of mercy and charity, part of the charitable thing to do when it comes to being philosophers and theologians is seek to clarify what might not be so clear. And that might yeah. be a, a good way to set up, I think, not only your work, but what, what we mean by education itself and the enduring reason we have to, to, to seek education. Absolutely. I mean, if I can kind of bridge this a little bit, um, there's two potential metaphors, uh, one real, one fictional that come to mind. Uh, my kids, uh, we go out once every summer and we fish for about a week. 
And uh, it's very simple, just bobber fishing with worms, but it's effective. Uh, but one of the things I don't like is whenever there's a lot of wind or when the water is rough, because then you don't have to just contend with the kids fishing with bobbers and all this other stuff. You also have to deal with all the movement. And I think that whenever we're talking about terms, I'll leave out the other one point I was going to bring up. Whenever we talk about terms, we forget that terms also, they take life within the world or within reality, as I said before. So like to your earliest point about like, did the church, uh, you know, it, especially the Italian church, did it really understand what was going on? I mean, it's also, we have to be generous that what was going on was itself changing. Like if people aren't afraid to put their heads into the weeds and read about, for instance, all the internal tensions of the the first international and the, the fierce debates between not only Marx, but Bakunin and Kropotkin and people who were very early, very anti-Marxist, very anti-capitalist, very anti-communist, very anti-statist, the mutualists, like the 19th century, when the church arrives, is not they're not arriving to a dead, not moving, still water. Everything is up in upheaval, and the church is throwing down within that. And 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 thank God for that. But I don't like this impression that we get that sort of when the church speaks, the water's still, everything stops moving. And that gets to your second point, which is if I could add just one little bit of complexity. It's one thing to clarify for terms to be clear and unclear, but if I'm taking a picture of a very foggy day. I don't want my picture to look like a clear day because that's, that is an overdetermined, overexposed or whatever metaphorical language we want to use there. But if things are actually foggy, they have to look foggy. And I think the church's um, terms over time are not just relating to uh, a still pristine, clear day. It's often a foggy day. John Paul II in Centesimus Annus, for instance, makes a reference to that true socialism usage in Quadragesimo Anno. And he actually does this after 1989, after the fall of, commun- of, of, of Russian Soviet communism. And he says, after, now that the true socialism has passed. So he's almost speaking in this post and well, he is speaking in a kind of post-communist era. So all of these things, if a Catholic wants to really engage with social teaching, and in particular, the meaning of words like socialism, communism, capitalism, all these things, you have to realize that this is the stew that we're all in. And we're in it right now, as you, as you pointed out. And I think it's really important. This is where the philosopher and the theologian who bring a certain amount of technique uh, can remind us. What I do worry about, though, is about a certain kind of kind of popular religion uh, speaker or kind of motivational speaker or sometimes apologist who skip the technique for the sake of simplifying quickly, which is appealing. But I think that actually does more damage than good in the end. Yeah, Sam, speaking personally for myself, when, when I think about stepping into the public square, like one thing that can be frustrating for me is it feels like the terms have already been set. And so, like, when you talk about U.S. electoral politics, it feels like there's very strict boundaries around, like, what's an acceptable opinion with respect to economics. And so we can be tempted, I think, to try to find, like, some option to withdraw from the world or just to have, like, just communities in our place. But as Catholics, of course, like, that's not really available to us because we we believe ourselves to be salt and light in the world. And I'm guessing, do you have any... um, input or like thoughts about how do we navigate sort of like trying to move the needle using like standard electoral politics or the democratic process with like, you know, you look at someone like Dorothy Day and there was a sense where 
the standard process was so lost that like it starts really locally and on the ground. So how do we kind of hold those those two things in balance? Yeah, I have to admit that my my mind and is changing on this. Um, I think actually some people will be a bit shocked if you read my 2017 collection of essays. That's really my thought from about 2008 to about 2016. Um, listening to my debate, I think you you would you'd wonder kind of where I stand. Uh, for a very long time, that kind of anarchic Dorothy Day stance struck me as um, the viable stance to have, especially within a particularly binary political system of two parties. Um at the same time, people like Frasadi uh, and, uh, and and many others who have worked within the sort of mainstream politics uh, have inspired me, and in particular within the climate we're in, because it's also a question of like degree, right? Um, uh, and then they've inspired me to to sort of uh, a, not totally abandon, but to um, to be a little bit more suspicious of the kind of exceptional status. Of, of Catholics. The bishops have taught us very clearly, I think, uh, internationally, but especially in the United States and in the English-speaking world, that the Catholics has a duty to inform their conscience and to vote and participate in politics according to a well-formed conscience. And so, you know, some of this thought on conscience and things like that have really um, uh, uh, helped me move more deeply, I think, into aligning myself with the Catholic teaching and not just taking a sort of cult of personality of the venerable, you know, uh, servant of God, Dorothy Day, as much as I love her, um, you know, also taking certain things with a certain grain of salt, I think. Well, I, I, I again, I, I know that maybe I'm like overdoing this point about how what you talk about with education plays into like our, like you said, coming to reality, coming mm-hmm. to terms so that we can. Um, and like you said, like, I love your point about if you're going to make a clear picture clarity sometimes is being clear about fogginess it's a great point right like mm-hmm. that we can't make that category confusion that being clear sometimes the best clarity you can give is there is no clarity yeah. <laughs> right? that, yeah. that is the clear picture yeah. um but you know you had a wonderful tweet appealing i mean i think pointing back to something you've written elsewhere that the only outcomes of education you say is you and me and us and as someone who has seen <laughs> in my uh, professional life as an educator be told more and more about like data driven decisions and these great arcane Byzantine calculuses in the sky. That's going to make us like understand whether our lesson plan worked better or not. This idea that the, that the actual outcomes is people, I think speaks to what you're saying as well about this third party, no party Benedict option versus like getting our hands dirty, you know, the, the 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 idolatry of every single one of those things is if we stop thinking that the outcome is us and that the outcome is the party or purity or whatever it is, that's where we lose the incarnational focus of everything we're talking about. The outcome is us. The outcome is people. The outcome is us as individuals and us and as a community. The outcome is never the party, the process, these things. And, you know, that can sound like so much platitudes, except Mm. sometimes we have to keep repeating platitudes because they're so easy to forget. I I totally agree. I mean, um, look, first and foremost, uh, I'm selective and wary about where I drive my flag post into, but I, I identify most openly and most comfortably as a personalist. Um, 
and I'm willing to, to kind of carry all the weight and baggage that comes with that, both technically and in a more basic way. And in some many ways, my reason for going onto the debate had a lot more to do with my personalism and the fact that within personalism, from Mounier all the way to today, there is a room for a kind of worldly uh, political apparatus that would include uh, democratic socialism among its livers, so I claim and so I argued. And this gets us right into the kind of educational um, discussion. First of all, politics and education go hand in hand, at least as far back as Plato, right? I mean, the question of education's political character, it's not only about the civic arrangement, but it's also about the fact that from Plato forward, the civic arrangement is a reflection and an analogy of the soul. And for no, me, I- for me, this 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 analogy and, and and to the soul is that whenever we fight for justice in the public square, we are engaging in work that is potentially redemptive at the level of 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 our of our very uh, innermost being. And to me, this is a profound truth that the Greeks have have impressed upon our tradition, and that I see as the reason. For, or the justification for the claim that whenever we engage in educational or political work, the only outcome, the only acceptable outcome is us, and not only the external us, but also the internal us, also our collective conscience and the soul that we all hope to be redeemed in Christ. Well, and I think that the, 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 that that metaphor, and again, like that, it, it so struck me when I read it from Plato all those years ago, is that you know the soul in the city are at least analogies and then like in many ways the western debate about politics and ethics is like how much of an analogy Mm -hmm. um but certainly since augustine the church has really thrown it in there and to say like oh no really a very good analogy uh that we have to pay attention to but i i think i interrupted you but i I think this was online with something that you were gonna ask no it's it's you're just helping me uh, uh get my feet set a little better it's early here on the west coast you know um uh yeah in addition to personalism i'd say uh I'm an Augustinian with uh, with Franciscan spiritual um, uh, uh, delights, you might say. Um, and so Benedict XVI's Augustinianism in particular has been a huge source of inspiration for me uh, of really allowing myself or permitting myself to kind of eat that platonic line, hook, line, and sinker, and really take that analogy to the soul seriously. Um what it does is it is it puts us into a particular kind of feedback loop of 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 recollection or the word is anamnesis both in scripture paul luke but also in plato where in the mino he says all learning and inquiry is but recollection the word he uses there is anamnesis that's the words of christ at the last supper remember me uh, do this in remembrance of me benedict says in his book on conscience that we ought to use anamnesis as our kind of uh, one of our main ways of understanding what the conscience is. And so the whole idea is that when we act in educational terms and political terms and the public square, um, we are not only just vaguely doing something, but we're literally engaged in a kind of memory work. We're building memory. We're building memory for future generations. We're tapping into the memory of our ancestors and our traditions. And to me, that kind of idea of the us being a really big um, anam- anamnesis remembrance us. It's really, um, it's really inspiring, but it's also daunting because you realize that there's uh, a lot more life at stake than just 
my little individualistic light and by the uh, life. But one last thing I would say is that um, sometimes the negatives aren't as clear. Um, the, the views I'm putting forth in every direction are deeply anti-individualistic. So the person is not an individual on my, on my account. Um, and also deeply um, hostile towards a, 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 an idea of freedom that is only negative. This conception of freedom is deeply, deeply positive um, in the sense that it's not just freedom from things or freedom as license, but also a freedom for things and a freedom that's directed towards a good of the good life, human flourishing, the common good, that kind of stuff. Yeah, Sam, another great uh, Canadian thinker, um, Charles, Charles Taylor, he has this notion of social imaginaries. And sometimes when we approach moral issues, if, if we fall short, it might not be a matter of like choosing X over Y in real black and white terms, but it might be a, a matter of like our social imaginaries need to be expanded because sometimes, like I said, like the water we're swimming in, like the terms have already been set. And I love your point about anamnesis and kind of like maybe exploding or expanding categories that we sort of took for granted what they, what they meant. I guess thinking creatively, like if you were to say like Catholics, like in what are some ways that like we could have our social imaginary expanded around the kind of topics we've been circling today? I hope I'm not going to be too controversial in answering your question in the way I will. By the way, Charles Taylor is another great Catholic socialist, uh, one of the, the found kind of most important people of the new left in the late 60s and founder of the new Democratic uh, Party, the, the NDP. So he's an orange uh, socialist Catholic. Um, uh, and God bless him for that. But, um, you know, to me, in, in the present tense, I think one of the so, – sometimes I think social imaginaries – um, emerge not only in a kind of um, uh, not only as an expressive capacity, but sometimes they they express themselves through a moral concern. So, for instance, like during the civil rights movement in the United States, I think that the the, the social imaginary of its time was for nuns and priests to lock arms and walk with Martin Luther King Jr. and 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 and, and everyone through the streets and and to call out to society to imagine an end to the Jim Crow South. And I think the abolitionist sentiment a hundred years before that is important. I think today we're living through a time in the United States at least, and also more globally, but I don't want to just talk about it in terms of, you know, black lives matter, or like the most, but I want to get it even inside the, like the nest of the church that I've been cradled in my entire life. Um, one way that I think American Catholics could kind of open the lens of the social imaginary, certainly through philosophy and theology. I think that's all great. But I even think culturally, to look at the different cultural expressions of Catholicism that are on offer and and think a bit about it. I grew up playing basketball on a cement slab that used to be the foundation for the chapel of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Whenever my small town, there was a Mexican chapel for Mexican liturgy, Spanish liturgy, and a white church, St. Patrick's Church. In other words, I grew up in a West Texas that was racially segregated up until like the 80s. Um, bringing together people in bilingual masses and all of the tensions that come that to me, that's a very real social imaginary. And Taylor has this on his heart when he talks about multiculturalism and interculturalism and the encounter of culture as an encounter with persons. So for me, one really practical way for people is to confront their own uh, provincialisms. I know I've had to do that up here in Vancouver. I'm kind of 
out of place up here. Um, but it's been wonderful. For instance, I've gotten to understand and know in a deeper and better way the Filipino community, which is really kind of the the, the bastion of Catholicism here. And, uh, and it's been a great gift to my faith. Yeah, I mean, uh, moving up here to Iowa, I've had to learn how food is not spicy at all. And that was uh, <laughs> not, I'm teasing. <laughs> I know, I think that's exactly right is, um, you know, one of the things we find uh, in our life is the sort of mobility that is hard for any of us to ignore. I mean, like, I think all three of us, uh, I think either in speeches or something we've written have talked about the importance of place, but I know all three of us have moved all over the place uh, mm. because of like, what life is like, uh, uh, you know, the, the past 15 to 20 years for scholars. Um, it's, it, it is happening. People are mobile. And you look at, you know, work from, you know, someone else that we've had on, uh, you know, Chris Arnotti, who talks about the fact of mobi- mobility versus immobility in the front row and the back row. We start mm-hmm. exploring those dynamics. And that starts to be the question that we start to ask ourselves is if we're going to have to live with things that may or maybe not are, are, are destructive, like mo- mobility. What is mm-hmm. the way, though, that we're going to find not a silver lining, but resurrection? Sure. Uh, you know, the, the power of God to take things that um, aren't perfect or, in fact, are bad, and that we can see in them flowering of new life. And I know that's a huge sure. thing. And there's like one well, minute left, but like, yeah, you know, I mean, I would in the show for us. Yeah. Well, I, I would just slightly, slightly press push back just a little bit uh, fraternally um, because in some cases, the, the kinds of social imaginary that need to be awakened are not so much to things that where movement is being introduced to stasis, but where there's always been movement, but, but our static imaginaries haven't been able to see them. So, uh, for instance, I hear people in Los Angeles or Sacramento saying, speak English. And it's like, the name of your city is literally in Spanish. <laughs> Think about that for three seconds. My goodness. Right. England is across the ocean. Like, seriously, like, pay attention, right? Um I think a lot of the American churches, uh, especially the Protestant nation of America, it has not been particularly agile. And so w- another reason, going back to your opening question, that I wanted to present those three cases was also to pre- present three cases that were broadly intercontinental, South America, uh, the Portuguese-speaking South America, Africa, and then the Mediterranean of, 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 um, aspect of, of, of Europe, of uh, uh, where I think oftentimes Americans, Catholics forget that to be Catholic is to be a part of a global church. And that global church is going to be look, look radically different. And we have, and thinking with the church means literally thinking in this global uh, way. And now this isn't globalism, the scary version, but it is, I think, a universalism that Paul calls us to when he says that, you know, in, in Christ, we have no, no, no um, uh, Jew or Greek, no servant or free, no woman or man. I think that's exactly right. The difference between an abstract globalism and a universal global church. Beautifully said. Um, Sam, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. uh, And I'd love to have you back at some point. Sam Raucha, associate professor uh, at the University of British Columbia. Many books that you should go check out. You can find all of this at samrocha.com. Sam, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you both. I really appreciate this. This is the uncommon good. May Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, in ourselves, in our family, our city, our state, uh, our nation, our world, the galaxy, the whole kit and caboodle. This is the uncommon good, and we'll be back next week.
But if folks want to be a part of the prayer life of Iowa Catholic Radio, what is an easy way for them to join in and do so? Yes, please join us for the rosary at 5.30 a.m., 9.30 a.m., and 9.30 p.m. That 9.30 a.m. rosary is dedicated to praying for our country. You can also um, join the online community using the Iowa Catholic Radio app at any time. And the Angelus is aired daily at 6 in the morning. And folks, uh, as we've said constantly through uh, the COVID crisis, now more than ever, we've understood uh, not only the importance of uh, nonprofits, but that they're... the, the need that they have and that it's through your prayers and graciousness that we're able to stay on air and have this wonderful resources that reaches people through walls 24 seven a day. Uh, and so if it, in your kindness and in your prayer life, you think that you want to be a part of our ministry, remember it's not just us who are on the air speaking or even the people behind the boards or behind the phones. It's really you that make this all possible. And you can go to iowacatholicradio.com and donate there. You can go on the Iowa Catholic Radio app and donate, or you can call 515-223-1150. Someone would love to talk to you about that. Folks, uh, thank you for listening. Bud, as always, have a wonderful week, my friend. Yeah, you too, Bo. Thanks. This is The Uncommon Good. We'll see you next week. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one and anytime on podcast. Just search for The Uncommon Good.